This copyrighted podcast of the James Perspective has been paid for and funded by James M. Wilkerson. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this podcast are a permutation and combination of words and sentences used in this podcast without the express written consent of James M. Wilkerson and the James Perspective is strictly prohibited. guys how we doing good morning we got james and the giant preacher here today so it's giant preacher yes and jim jimbo's here and all three of the james perspective originals are here because big jim is here in spirit he loves to talk about the canon of scriptures i guarantee he's listening (laughs) (laughs) and doc is here glenn welcome back to america i was in america i was in the wonderful uh, area, Kansas City area. You know, so. when two when, when, when citizens of a state kill each other like they did, Jayhawks, who were the other ones? I don't know if you're really American or not. Just kidding. I didn't get that joke. <laughs> I would have loved You don't know about the Kansas, the state of Kansas Jayhawks. killing each other? That's where the Jayhawks come from. Were there some red legs? Red legs were in they were in Virginia. No. Where were they? I don't know. They were, at least, let me put it this way. The only place I ever heard of Redneck was on uh, Outlaw Josie Whale, and they were from Virginia in that movie. <laughs> well, you know, today we're going to talk about the canon of the scripture. I think it's C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N. The canon wasn't the scripture. It wasn't invented when, that, when the New Testament was invented. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's all we have to say about this. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> all right, Glenn, Jim, you wanted to talk about the canon of the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. And so um, part of my final project is discussing canonization of scripture and uh, canonization of particularly the Pauline text and the uh, four Gospels, uh, I could tell that, like, at least from my reading of it and how the Apostolic Fathers approached it, meaning the people who came after the Apostles, they organically took these on. Like, it was it was kind of a given that those things were Scripture. However, whenever we're dealing with the Catholic epistles or the general letters to the Church, which are James to Jude, you have James, the two epistles from Peter, the three epistles from John, uh, and the uh, one epistle from Jude, those are seven total, then you sort of have a different story as far as their unanimous attestation. They They were never rejected or considered spurious as far as we could tell. You said attestation is spurious and you lost everybody in Ireland. What's that? Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, they were never outright rejected. Sorry, my bad. They were never they were never considered like heretical or anything like that. But they were there were there was a lot of speculation as far as which texts were Peter's, let's say, because Peter was the guy. I mean, he was the rock star of the apostles. I know that Paul was there, but Peter walked with Christ and Christ started with ministry. 
And so everybody and their mother were writing things in Peter's name that weren't really Peter's. So there was a lot of confusion going on as far as which letter for Peter's and which stuck out. So there was a there was a hesitation by many to uh, outright go ahead and say, yes, this is scripture. But we have it from whenever whenever we have the earliest mention, mentioning of Second Peter, let's say, which is the most disputed of the text. Whenever the earliest mentionings of Second Peter that we have are uh, affirmations that this is scripture, even though the people saying that this is scripture are also saying, even though it's disputed by many or by some. And, and what they mean by many or some, it depends. The majority of the church, according to Eusebius, had already accepted Second Peter, even though it's considered one of the disputed books. All of this is to say is that the Catholic epistles, those epistles, or the letters, I'm going to call them letters, the letters that I just mentioned are the ones Who's they, they have a different route. What's up? Who's Eusebius? Eusebius was an early church father in the third, wait, when was he? Dang it, it was, he was from the, I think he lived at the turn of the century from the 200s to the 300s. And, and, what's, right? he, and so, what's he known for? What's that? What's he known for? He wrote a, a series of works on the history of the church. And it's a very well-known series. Okay. It's one that's, uh, you know, that people, the historians very much respect. Okay. And we get a lot of the writings from other church fathers that are no longer in existence, such as Clement of Alexandria. He has a writing that we no longer have, but Eusebius records in his church history. And so right, we so sort of get. I'll, I'll, let me make sure, let's take a step back because you're starting off starting off where I'm following you, but not following you. Let's, 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 let's make it simple first. Let's throw the bottom of the shelf. When you talk about the canon of scripture, that's what's been accepted by man as the actual word of God. I don't think it's big. Well, hmm, let me think about that statement. That's a, that's a tricky statement. I'm a tricky lawyer. Because I, I don't I don't think that man determines scriptural status. All right, man has accepted as scripture. Yeah, man has accepted. I could I could go along with that. All right. So and so what has been accepted is called the canon meaning that that is the actual word of God and belongs in the Bible. And, mm-hmm. it, and anything that's not canon might or might not be true. It's just not true. Right. Correct. And what we're talking yeah. about today is how did it, how did we come about deciding what was in or, uh, ex, or acknowledging what was in the word of God? Or mm-hmm. is it something else that we're doing here? No, well, we're doing that first, what you just said. Okay. And, Knowing how in the process of determining what was in the canon of scriptures, is that what you're talking about now? So we're talking about Eusebius and we're talking about, we're talking, we're bringing him up. Why is that? How's that? We're bringing up the apostolic fathers because they would have, they're the earliest recipients of these texts and they're the ones who are responding to them. Now, the early, the early church, both the Catholic faith and the protestants accept them is that is that where i'm getting from you yes so the cat that's the interesting thing about the new testament is catholics and protestants agree on the canon of the new testament okay now so now i want to go back and, and, and say this 
Eusebius was the first name I picked up on. Oh, but, but but is that where it starts? As far as the canon goes, no, it starts with, well, it actually starts in Second Peter. You see Second Peter talking about Paul's letters. And I forget which verse this is exactly. I think it's Second Peter 3.16, discussing Paul's letters and equating them with Scripture, with Old Testament Scripture. Really? I so, have that. Now, Peter, that's the first pope, right? <laughs> um, let's stay on. Let's stay on top. <laughs> okay. You are. You do know who you're talking to, right, Jim? <laughs> yeah, I know who I'm talking to. So uh, this is great training for me. Okay. So um, so so anyway, I would say that the whatever you're so how you described canon earlier that man accepts something as scripture, then boom, it's in canon. It's kind of sort of a very quick. And natural process after you accept something as scripture, it's like, well, that's canon. Um, then you see that in Second Peter. Second Peter is saying, well, we have these Pauline letters, and they're equated with the Old Testament scripture. Okay. All right. So there you go. You get a you, you have a process of canonization happening in Second Peter. Okay. The Pauline epistles. Um, how do you, how do you how is the comparison? of the Pauline epistles to the Old Testament. So there are several, oh, wait, to the Old Testament. Yeah, because didn't you say that just a moment ago? Maybe I misunderstood. That, yeah, okay, so the second, the second Peter equates the Pauline epistles with the Old Testament, right? Is okay. that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah, well, the way that, it, that Peter goes about writing this, I think that Peter wrote Second Peter, by the way, and I'll get into that later. But um, the way that Peter goes about writing it is that uh, he says that there are a collection of letters that Paul has out there, that these letters say things that are difficult to understand, and people who are essentially untrained or unwise will misconstrue what Paul is saying, just like they misconstrued the other scriptures. And so he, he says the other scriptures, implying that these Pauline texts are alongside those scriptures. He does just say, like the scriptures, he says, like the other scriptures. Does that make sense? Um, I'm not sure that I'm following you, but... Uh, okay. All right, so Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. That would tell you that it might not be a, a cigarette. But if you say it tastes good as a cigarette should, you know that Winston is a cigarette. So what he's saying is because it's as the other apostles, other, other words of God, that this must be the word of God. Yeah, and this is something you never would have thought we would talk about. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is something that's unanim unanimously agreed upon by people who study Second Peter. Even the skeptics say the writer of Second Peter, even though he's not Peter, was equating Paul's letters with Old Testament scripture. And so everybody agrees on this point that Paul was. Refer. I mean, the Second Peter was referring to Paul's letters as scripture. Do you have that scripture that you can read it, or is that something I'm asking? Yeah, give me one second. I'll go. To, I'm pretty sure it's Second Peter three sixteen. Well, Doc can read it now. Do you want me to read it? Yes. Okay. Uh, speaking of these things and all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of scripture. And this will result in their destruction. Yep, that sounds like to me, Peter's yep. calling epistles. I've always asked that question. Why are you just now answering? I'm 64 years old, and I've been asking about these Pauline epistles all these years. Jim's got to go to seminary for someone to explain it to me. 
Yeah, right. yeah well. sometimes that has to happen. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm done. Yeah. I've, I've got my, my nugget for the day. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, it, it, you see this in the um, early church record, as far as the Pauli epistles go, that they're unanimously accepted very early on. I mean, there are some fragments here and there that have like 10 of Paul's letters or whatever, but there was no one ever rejecting any of the, or putting them into question, any of the Pauline letters. And the church fathers were quoting from all of them, like from, from the pastoral epistles, uh, Romans, first Corinthians, like they were, they were quoting all. All right. Well, I summarized the Pauline epistles like this. They tell you who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ, and what you can do in Christ. There we go. And I think that you could trust that because everybody else has trusted it. And people who have much more knowledge than you and I have. Well, that was interesting. I see where you're coming from. That, that, that you could bank on that. You could say that those three things are there mm-hmm. and, and you can't cut any of them out. And, Correct. And, and yes. really, really a new believer, it would be good for them to just uh, uh, focus to begin with on the Pauline epistles uh, to understand who they are in Christ. What they have in Christ, what they what they can do in Christ, and it seems like very few. I could be wrong, but very few uh, ministers uh, minister on the Pauline epistles, trying to uh, shine a light on those three things, and they're found in the Pauline epistles, and it's in in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, over and over again. Uh, Paul's trying to make you understand that Christ in you, Christ is in you, and uh, and, and you'll discover the power of Christ being in you. The more that you focus on it and meditate on it, what you really have in Christ, what you can do in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is a that is a common phrase that's in those Pauline epistle epistles or letters. Um, I. I <laughs> I like the idea of calling them letters because epistles just seems like a, you, you're being feng shui about it, you know, whenever you say epistles rather than letters. But they're really just letters, even though they're inspired letters. They're not pistols or cannons. Who argues that one? You need to come to seminary. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll take up a collection to send you. The general seminary would be the same after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but another instance of, let's say, uh, the New Testament determining canon. And again, whenever we talk about determining canon, what they're really doing is determining what scripture and by determining what scripture they're saying this is canon, even though the word canon wasn't used, they they have the idea of canon. It's it's kind of like the idea of the Trinity, even though the word Trinity is not used. That idea is biblical, even though it's not explicitly used in scripture. Um, but you have First Timothy five eighteen that is referencing two pieces of scripture. Um, one is from Deuteronomy. Uh, I forget what exactly the verse is, but the or what the number is in Deuteronomy. But the verse goes uh, like this: For Scripture says, "Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, 
That's from Deuteronomy. And then uh, second or First Peter five eighteen continues, and the worker deserves his wages. Now, even though that seems like a short and simple sentence, that uh, that sentence, the worker deserves his wages, is the exact Greek from Luke. I believe it's seven ten or ten seven. I think it's ten seven. Luke ten seven. So Paul is writing in First Timothy five eighteen that Luke is scripture. Okay. Oh, I see what you're doing. You're bootstrapping everything here. What do you mean? Well, I mean, if you want to be ranked really high, just be an SEC because they're going to rank everybody high and you play each other, so your ranking goes up. So what you're saying here is is all these scriptures say that everybody else is scripture, scripture, and they bootstrapped everybody into the camp. There we go. That's it. So they're SECing the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> That's going to be uh, the in the show notes right now. <laughs> <laughs> get some good old rednecks in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, give me one second, and then let's see. And then you also have uh, evidence, I would say perhaps, uh, from 2 Corinthians 5.20, which is Paul considering himself to be Christ's ambassador. So the apostles, uh, the um, apostolos, that's the Greek word for apostle, also means ambassador. So they're Christ's ambassadors. That's what the apostles are. You know, I've heard that term all my life. Tell me what it means to be ambassador of Christ. Well, so there are different... There are different definitions for that, I'm sure. But the apostle, whenever we're dealing specifically with that, people typically confine that to those who either walked with Christ as earthly ministry or saw him as the risen Christ. So so the way that we use ambassador now is not how Paul was using it. Because I will tell you, I've always just anecdotally, we're going to say this as a child, I heard that ambassador of Christ. And I was thinking, well, you don't want to be a reflection because an ambassador, that's somebody who's bringing, trying to bring goodwill and, and negotiations with another country. And that's true because mm-hmm. we, we, we represent yes. heaven on earth. We are an mm-hmm. ambassador. Yeah. And so using it in that way, I would say that we are ambassadors. But we it would be wrong to try to conflate us with apostles. You could call us apostles, too, but you're using the same word with a different definition. Well, then what? we're trying to specifically use for the apostles in the New Testament. Well, uh, the apostle in in the New Testament, like it talks about Jesus. He said that he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. So that's also seemingly defines an office of fivefold minister uh, ministry. And it's for the perfecting of the saints. You see, you see where I, I, feel, we're, we're, I feel like I feel like we're getting off. We may be, we may be, but the, the reason I said it was, I didn't know if that would be a good reason to say that he was authorized to write the word of God because that, that he may be talking about a different office as ambassador. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm getting right. at. Yeah, I yeah, always no, heard I, that, I get that. I always heard. Just, go ahead. Yeah. So. The, the whole point I'm making is not that he writes that he's Christ's ambassador. He writes on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, there are some people who say that that's, that is going a step above and beyond 
being a simple ambassador whenever you begin to write on Christ's behalf. Yeah. And yeah. so I put that I put that sort of in parentheses as far as maybe see further or, or see possibly Second Corinthians five twenty. Um, because this is something that can be debated. The uh, other pieces of text, such as Revelation one one through three, are saying that this is a revelation directly from God. Paul is also telling the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians, the First Thessalonians, that uh, he was glad that they received uh, his words not as his own, but the word from God. Now he's talking about words that he previously told them, so I wouldn't say that that's applying to those scriptures, but it seems to me that. Whatever he was writing, especially whenever he was imploring them on Christ's behalf, this was something that he was viewing as scripture and that his counterpart, Peter, was viewing as scripture. And he was asking the telltale sign, according to historians, that Paul was writing, believing these things to be from the word of God, that he was telling them to read it in front of the church. And he was commanding them in the name of the Lord to read this out loud to the church. And the historical context there, the cultural context there, is that the only things that are to be read out loud in the church are scripture. I got you. I got you. So, so there's pretty good evidence riddled throughout the New Testament that these authors knew that what they were writing was scripture. I got you. I do. And so, and so we can we can make a pretty good argument that canonization, the process of it was starting immediate as the New Testament was being written, not as it was being received, as it was being written. And they knew what they were doing. Yes. Yeah, they knew exactly what they were doing. So they're without excuse that they led us astray. Well, through the years, uh, Jim, I have heard that where it mentions apostle in the fivefold ministry that I stated a few minutes ago, that it is very much like our word missionary today. Uh, someone that uh, builds on a foundation that nobody else is built on. And when you look at the Pauline epistles, uh, he's kind of building on a foundation that, I don't know, the rest of the New Testament doesn't seem to be building on the same foundation. It's all Jesus Christ. Don't give me That's not what I'm saying. But he's trying to show, uh, the Apostle Paul's trying to show a practical side of walking in the Spirit. And the others are telling the great works that Jesus Christ did and, and explaining uh, good from evil. I don't know. I, I'm just, these are the things that's coming over my mind while you're talking. And so. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I like this because you're in a different stage than I am in this conversation. You have already taken on the canonical Wait, canonical status. Come yeah, on. there we go. <laughs> Let the <laughs> load you Yeah, that's it. Anyway, canonical. You've already taken on the canonical status of these scriptures. Now you're trying to figure out, okay, the next step is what can we extract from these scriptures? And you're there. I'm there with you, by the way. Like, I, I believe these things are canon, but as part of this research, I'm trying to determine whether they're canon. Yeah, okay. I understand. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not test. It's just, but yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, but anyway, I, I I think I follow. I, I want to tell you something. It was worth it just having podcast just to get that fact that that Peter recognized Paul's letters as canon. 
And then you're saying, was it Luke? That, that someone was the second one? Yes. Okay. First Timothy 5.18. Go read that. And that's why I have qualms with people who try to date Luke after Paul. Because I think that Paul was, in some sense, familiar. Not, not necessarily dependent on Luke's writings, but he was familiar with it. And that means that the author of Luke, who I believe is Luke, and the author of Acts, who I believe is Luke, wrote before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that he wrote before Paul's death, that this was a very early account of Jesus Christ as a very accurate one. And so all, all that's to say is that 1 Timothy 5.18 is a very good reference point to seeing how early New Testament writings were starting to be called scripture. Paul was writing that Luke's writings were scripture. And I know that this is something debated as far as whether Paul wrote First Timothy, but the arguments, I'm not going to go there today. The arguments just aren't good as far as Paul not writing First Timothy. He's universally attested to as writing First Timothy. All of the vocabulary differences could be explained by Paul taking other pieces of scripture or forms. That's what it's called whenever they would quote someone in the past form. He has forms riddled throughout his letter. And all of the vocabulary differences are in those forms. And so Paul is writing Pauline vocabulary and style, except for whenever he's quoting someone else. And so there's just no real good argument as far as Paul not writing First Timothy. So it's, I think that you could stand on very solid ground saying he wrote that. Here it is. Paul is quoting from Luke's writing saying, and calling Luke's writing scripture. And so... It, Luke wrote very early on, and very early on, Luke's writings were considered scripture. Well, let me ask you this, now that you are a nationwide preeminent expert on ancient <laughs> Koine Greek. <laughs> <laughs> how good, have you heard anything about how good Paul's Greek, Koine Greek was, how, how, how well he was able to command the language? So Paul was really good. Luke was really good. John, people are saying wrote a very simple okay. gospel for the lay reader to understand. I don't think that this is an indication that John was an idiot. I think this is an indication that he knew who he was writing to. I got you. You wouldn't want to use it's, the word spurious to, to every podcast right. audience. Well, it's kind, of like, <laughs> it's kind of like these books. So Milton Friedman was able to talk about economics with the highest professionals, but then he was also able to produce everyday books for lay readers. And so if you if you looked at the vocabulary differences of those books you would and you never knew that it was the same author, you would never conclude that it was the same author. Yes. Yeah, I, I can give you an example of that. One of the first uh, one of the first books and lectures I heard, I'm I'm remember his name later. It always works out to be I forget names. He was a professor at Yale. And he's one of the first people who put his lectures online free. And he wrote a book that I even let you, in fact, I haven't seen it again. I gave it to you while you were in the Marines and you read it. But that book was very easy to understand. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll order another one of his books. And it was written for other academicians. I don't understand a daggum thing he said. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so, and so you sort of get these vocabulary differences, even among the letters that everybody agrees Paul wrote. So in... First Corinthians and Second Corinthians is written to the same audience, but there's a lot of different vocabulary that's used, even though everybody agrees that Paul wrote these two letters. And so it's one of those things where if you look at linguistic 
studies alone, that's not going to really tell you much about authorship. It's just going to tell you, eh, yeah, they use a different language here for some reason or another. And, you know, they, they produce these stats, which could be very helpful, but at the same time, aren't conclusive about whether or not someone wrote something. And so they're trying to do that with First Timothy. And the thing is that someone was able to really easily explain, like, look, these are forms. This was Mark Yarborough, by the way, was able to explain this very well. Well, he was a NASCAR driver. What's that? He was a NASCAR driver. Yeah, NASCAR driver. Um, And so this NASCAR driver was really able to (laughs) explain that these are forms being used in the letter and that every time Paul is using different vocabulary from what these scholars think or not is, he's really quoting from someone else. Oh, let me let me ask you. This may be a huge setback, and you don't have to go more than thirty seconds on it if it's if it's way out of the way. But you know, if you remember, have you gotten into the Middle Age scholars yet? No. Okay, Abelard is one of them, and he was one of them who was sort of contesting the Catholic Church reliance on their governance by being Platonian, being Plato as, as opposed to Aristotle, which is more closer to uh, to, to a, uh, a Protestant would be. They didn't mind him writing on it, though. They, they said, do it. We need to study these things. We need you to, to present papers. We need you to scholastically debate this with us. But for whatever, you just don't go to the congregation to teach that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, right. and I'm not saying what you're talking about doesn't need to be taught. But I will say that it really is probably the audience is Chris. It's his son. It is Tim Tim Higdon. That's who the audience that should be of what you're learning, because I think you're going to go ahead of it. Right. No, no, no. I agree. So where I see my position in ministry, and that's what seminary has done a really good job about getting me to think about is where do I fit in God's kingdom? Uh, I see myself as... Being the person that gives hands things to Chuck Swindoll so that Chuck Swindoll yeah. doesn't have to do it. Right. He, he, he <laughs> forms his own he forms his own scripture, but he doesn't have any doubt that the scripture from which he's pulling information from is indeed inspired and is the word of God and is properly associated with canon. He doesn't have any doubt about it because I've already done the legwork in that. And I've done the legwork in saying, look. These are the boundaries as far as um, as far as orthodoxy goes. You can come up with any conclusion within these boundaries. Just don't go outside of these boundaries. I got you. So you can box in Christ. I can box in Christ. That's my job. <laughs> just kidding. I get it. I, I I do. I get it. I really do. And and I enjoy the conversation. Uh, obviously, I enjoyed the debate with Abelard enough that I remembered it. So, so I think that's where we are here is that I don't even know that it would be good to get too much into that because uh, the auto mechanics are going to get it wrong. And I'm not trying to cut automobile mechanics. I said lawyers, too. It could have just as easily said lawyers. They have a different place in the kingdom. Yeah. yeah, And and same to lawyers. You guys have a different place in the kingdom. You don't necessarily need to know. This. For what it's worth, but, for what it's worth, anybody that knows me knows that I have the highest respect for automobile mechanics. One who can really get things fixed. I mean, I have this huge respect for a good automobile mechanic. So I, I thought that might have come across as slighty. An automobile mechanic was not. I, I'm amazed at one that can fix these cars. 
Because when I when I fix them, they get worse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so so what I'm saying is is that that the Catholic Church I think was right telling them Abelard the, the the masses don't need to hear this, and a lot of people thought that that was hiding no. from the masses. It wasn't. Right. Mm-hmm. I right. think it's yeah. I think it's a good foundation for the faith of the people. It's not something you would preach on every Sunday. It's something that you could uh, incorporate into any message, just a, a little dab at a time, and uh, and, and would would build the faith of people. I mean, even before you went to seminary, Jim, you were doing a lot of studying, and you would bring things up uh, that I had never really uh, meditated on or thought about or read about, and I felt my faith rising up. And I told you that several times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, I appreciate that. One thing that I was thinking about as far as the presentation of what we're talking about in canonization is if you're going book by book, let's say, uh, to the congregation, you're trying to go through the Bible in a year or something like that. I don't think that it, there would be a problem with having a sermon set aside before at, with the introduction of each book saying, OK, this is the author. This is how we know who the author is. This is how it was accepted very early on. We don't have any evidence that it was not accepted as canon, and so we can trust that this is the Word of God. If that would be something that would be useful, I believe, for a congregation, especially for there are people who are in the audience like me who are like, well, why are you preaching from Second Peter or whatever? We don't even know that this is the Word of God, or you haven't presented a good enough case that this is the Word of God. I would almost be seeing, well, like I would almost be sitting there thinking, like, this almost feels like a waste of time because I can't even tell if this is the word of God. Like you're you're presenting something to me that this is the word of you're putting the cart before the horse that this is the word of God without proving to me that this is the word of God. You haven't you haven't done any background information. So especially with a disputed text like Second Peter, this would be something that would be very beneficial for me if someone were to go through that book. They say, look, just so you guys know, this is a highly contested text these days, all right? In the past, it wasn't necessarily so. It was almost unanimously um, accepted, except by a few people, and that was because there were a bunch of uh, apocrypha circulated, attributed to Peter, that people were trying to sort out. But first and second Peter stood out among the rest is these are authentically Peters. And so we could trust these for various reasons. Then you go through them. That would help me out tremendously. Yes, but the the other side of the coin, and and I believe what you just said, <clears throat> the other side of the coin is like Sunday. Sunday oh, oh my mic. Uh, he just doesn't get close Sunday. <laughs> Sunday I heard a minister minister on the joy, on joy. And he used several different scriptures. And what I'm saying in, in everything that I'm talking about right now, I'm saying that there is an underlying anointing that was on the minister. And he um, he he laid out uh, an argument for joy and the spirit of God gets involved. If the spirit of God is not getting involved in a sermon, it's just dead. There's nothing to it. But the spirit of God, the move of the spirit of God, the presence of the spirit of God is what will change minds and hearts of people because it's a reality. The word of God holds a reality in the spirit realm that will supersede any historical thing about the Bible. But it doesn't mean that you couldn't open up a scripture talking about 
the canonization of a certain book of the Bible. That's, uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying there's another side of this thing, and that is the move of the Spirit of God, the, the Spirit of God that comes out of the Word of God when it is preached. Absolutely. I think that it would be highly impractical for you every time that you were going to talk about Second Peter to bring up by the way, this is the argument for his canonization, and then you go through it, and then people just fall asleep because you feel like you have to justify your preaching it every time. No, I think that it would be very helpful if you had a really, really good sermon on it, detailing the arguments and saying why you believe that Peter wrote Second Peter, and have that archived maybe on a church website or something, saying, and so that that way, whenever you do bring it up, saying, and those of you who are down, just go watch this video. We have a link for you. And then continue. And you don't even have to do that. If someone comes up to you at the end, you can always refer them to that source. You do and know so that Swindoll has done that. Yeah. And so I think that that's a really, really good practice. I think that the worst thing that you could do, and this is what's happened to a lot of these Catholic epistles, is that they're often ignored um, because of their what? Because of wait, the wait, wait, attack wait. levied against them. You got to start over. Catholic, start, first of all, you're talking about the little C, right? Yeah, the Catholic epistles. The, the Catholic letters are what I just said. They're the Catholic letters are general letters to the church, which is this collection of letters from James to Jude. It's James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude. Okay. So whatever, whatever I refer to that, that's, that's the collection that I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. So the Catholic letters often get ignored. Now, we're not necessarily sure why that's the case, but they don't get not enough attention. And I think it's because they're viciously attacked by intellectuals. And if you have a doubt about something, the, I think the worst thing you do is just ignore it and let it fester. Like, go research and attack it head on. I, I would agree that it, at your level, it's very important that you do that. At, that. at the level that Jim is trying to get to, you've got to be able to, I think I'm understanding you, you've got to directly attack any intellectual, you've got to go back, I say attack something instead of where being peer review any intellectual who is denying them, right? Is that what you're trying to yeah, say? I would say I would, it's not attacking the intellectuals, attacking your doubt. Because maybe your doubt's right. Yes. That's that's Abelard. That's what's going on with the Catholic Church at the time. You need Abelard in there challenging everything that, that they consider dogma. Mm -hmm. Is, that, is yeah. that where, am I with you or am I missing? Yeah, yeah. I would say this. It's not good for you to have doubt that you say, well, I'm going to believe despite this doubt. I think that's not healthy. I think the healthy way of going about okay. it is reading is, is diligently searching God. Okay. Um, and so the what what the point that I make it though also is that even for the lay reader, like it's fine if you never doubt. That's fine. But if you're a lay reader and you're doubting a lot, then yeah, that's bad that that's festering because I think that's going to lead to unbelief. You're just gonna doubt. You're never gonna study it. That doubt is there so that you can study it. I'm with you. But there are a lot of lay readers, and this is no bash on them at all, who just don't doubt. And that's great. Like, they do not need to go research these things. But I think that there are people who are meant to be in the intellectual realm who are doing something else, and they're doubting a lot. They're saying, well, it's not my job. But then it just leads to questioning everything that the preacher is saying. And that's no good for anyone. Well, yeah, that what you're talking about there is Voltaire's washerwoman, that famous story, or you know, he he made up the parable. 
that Voltaire made up a parable that said that there was a washerwoman down there who they asked her how could she be so happy all the time, and it basically she just trusted God, and that was it. It was a faith that was there, and they go, they go, she doesn't doubt anything. And the guy that was questioning her came back all miserable because she was very happy, and he wasn't as happy as she was. Why don't you just become like her? And he goes, I can't. Now that I've seen it, now that I've challenged it, I have got to continue to to seek the academic side of it, the the you know the, the study of it. He couldn't. In other words, he couldn't be the washerwoman anymore. I'm not saying that that's a blissful ignorance. I just think that that washerwoman, that was her. That was what she was to do. That that was the life that was set forth for her. And it's fortunate she found bliss. But that other guy should be able to find bliss in in seeking higher truths, don't you think? Yes, I think that you are most miserable as an intellectual if you let these doubts fester and you never answer the questions. Yeah, you you have to go answer the questions or that's you're going to be the most miserable person. Now, if you're never doubting, don't like if you're not doubting, I'm not saying don't go study, but you might actually be very miserable if you force yourself to go study these, these things. Um, and so I'm not I'm not necessarily giving advice one way or the other. I'm just saying that's a hypothesis that I have that there are people who might be miserable if they force it, but there are other people who are sitting there in the congregation, they're doubting everything the preacher's saying, second-guessing everything, just let this fester, and they're the most miserable types of people. Well, there's a lady that listens to this podcast, goes to the church I, that I attend, and she comes and says good morning to her every day, but every Sunday. But she is one of those, I think, that she trusts the minister to, to speak the truth. She's not going to mm-hmm. sit and doubt that minister. I think if that minister, she leaves that to others, if there's ever apostasy or something like that coming through the church. I think she waits for someone else to hear it. But she's had she likes it. She she trusts the preacher to say the right thing. And what I think that the, the step is is that that preacher needs to make sure he knows what the right thing is. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. think I think it's a mistake to think that an intellectual cannot be moved by the Spirit of God. And he 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 may have some doubts, but those doubts are pushed down because he knows the reality of the presence of the Lord, and it has changed his life. Would, would Stanford University, would that be one of the top-notch universities of the nation? Yes. Okay. I had, here's where I'm going with that. Is it zero under, yeah, got it. I had a professor from tech that was from Stanford. He graduated uh, through Stanford University. And Observing him through the years that he was with me, he eventually went back to California. Uh, he he was received, he had questions about some of the things I preached, but he bought into it. And I would say that it was because of the presence of the Lord and because of Scripture upon Scripture that made made you uh, follow it and understand it. And one uh, Scripture is. Um, one, one scripture is is uh, addressing or or coming into harmony with another scripture, and it becomes a a a doctrine in him because of the presence of the Lord, not just because intellectually he could see that if you look at the Bible, uh, scripture based upon scripture begins to build up faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith will supersede anything intellectual that has you bound. That's what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm, absolutely. 
Yeah, I don't think anybody here is denying that the Holy Spirit can inspire an intellectual and uh, take them down a path. In fact, I think that that's exactly what happened to me. But I also think that the Holy Spirit brings conviction on you as far as, hey, it highlights these things that are hovering around in your head. Just that it's kind of the same as you're going down a bad path of doing drugs and you have this very sick feeling about this is not the lifestyle for me. That's the Holy Spirit conviction. It's kind of the same thing about those doubts. Like, well, why do you have those doubts? How about you go study this rather than just let those doubts fester? And so you sort of get this nauseating feeling, which is sometimes what I get if I let something go for too long. And so that's what I'm saying as far as these doubts festering. I think that it's not necessarily, um, I don't think that they're necessarily a bad thing in the sense that, um, how am I saying it? They're, they're not the things that are making you feel bad. I think the thing that's making you feel bad is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, doubt doubt's probably not like the right word for Chris. Like it might it might be like giving like a different. I I don't know how to like say this, but yeah, like doubts isn't necessarily a bad because I I yeah. look at it the way Jim does. Like if you have doubts, that that doesn't mean that you're necessarily even questioning God. You're trying to figure out what the truth is. So right. that is the Holy Spirit convicting. I don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so and so for for example, I have a question about these Catholic letters or general letters we call them that since catholics seems to confuse people we call, we call them the general letters these i i was having questions about them it wasn't doubts about their can this is even though you could probably say that well if you're questioning it then you have doubts but all i'm all i'm seeking to do is see well how did these things become canon what was the process and why are people saying that they're not canon and so anyway that's what i want to talk about today was the general epistles because the like I said, the Pauline epistles were accepted very, very early on, and so were the four Gospels. Um, the four Gospels, I don't think that there's any writing that you could say rejects any of them. They don't. All of them were accepted very early on, and you even have the Dia Tesserin, which is, that that in Greek literally means by four. I had and to look that up yesterday. What's that? I had to look that up yesterday. Oh, okay, yeah. It is, it is by Tatian, um, that the Four Gospels, this is pretty good evidence that the four Gospels were accepted very early on, and what he was trying to do was trying to harmonize them one. And um, I'm not going to go into whether what he did was right. And there's a lot of indication that what he did was not what was intended to be done with the Gospels. But all that's to say is that he recognized very early on while he was writing that, I think that was about 160. Um, was that there were four Gospels, that this was not some invention made up by Irenaeus in 180, which is what skeptics tend to argue, that he unilaterally made the Church conform to the four Gospel model, and that this was all done on the part of Irenaeus, unilaterally. And we know, you know how I feel about someone trying to say that leadership unilaterally determines what the broader population does. That's not a good model. I, do, I think that's very much outdated. I think the Christian church knew that there were four Gospels and four Gospels only, and that this was why the canonization of the four Gospels happened. All right, it wasn't so, something so the, that was top down. I'm, 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 I'm a little fuzzy, so I'm, there may be other fuzzy, too. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to make you backtrack a little. So you have, the four, you have the four Gospels. Yeah. Then you have the Pauline Epistle. Huh. All right. And then what are you calling the universal or the gen? The general, general letters. Yeah, we call them general letters. Well, well, Catholic means universal, right? Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. All right, so what? Why? Why are you skipping from Catholic little C to general? Because it seems like that hung you up. 
Well, it didn't. I was clarifying for others that he was in capital C. Yeah, I think yeah. It, I think it would uh, confuse some of the listeners by using Catholic. Yeah. Right, and, 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 and well, they're, I, they're called they're called both Catholic and general epistles. Okay, but a little C. And and when you go to the Episcopalian Church and they do the uh, and they do the uh, Nicene Creed, Catholic is little C. They don't put the capital C like they do in the Catholic Church. And it means, doesn't it mean general church? Or? I thought it meant universal. Well, that's, universal. Okay, yeah. so so now what is included in that general universal slash little C Catholic? James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 2. And why are they different than the epistles of Paul? Well, they have different authors to start. Okay. Uh, there are different emphases in these letters. Even Paul had different emphases, but... Uh, they're, they're not totally different in the sense that they're contradicting anything Paul said. Paul talks about the second coming, and so did uh, so does Peter. Uh, he emphasizes that. Um, Jude does too, I think. In fact, Jude and Second Peter are very similar, and that's a whole other study in itself. Anyway, all that's to say is that they're different because they circulated differently, they were accepted differently, and they have different authors. I got you. I got you. So, yeah. so, so, am, am I right about this? You have the, the four gospels, you have the Pauline epistles, and then everything else is considered general. No, because then you have um, you have Acts, and Acts That's seems historical. to have been yeah, Acts is historical, and that one is a weird one. I think as far as collections go, because some say that it was part of the general letters or the Catholic letters. Some say that it was part of that collection of letters, and then others say that it was attached to the end of the four Gospels. And I think, like, I think that both are historically attested to the evidence that there were some manuscripts where four Gospels and Acts were collected together, and then there are some manuscripts where the where Acts of the seven letters were collected together. Um, and then you also have Revelation at the end, and Revelation is okay. not part of the general letters. That's just John's Apocalypse. That's a category of its own. Okay, I got it. I think mm -hmm. so. Then, then yeah. now I'll do it this way: you have the the Gospels, you have Acts, the Pauline Epistles, the General Epistles, and Revelation. Yep. Yeah. Man. And so, I'm and ready to take the, a test. <laughs> what's that? I said I'm ready to take a test. Yeah, you're ready to take a test. And <laughs> but I think that the uh, circulation of those uh, epistles, and well, I think that the circulation of each collection. Is very interesting because they were circulated as collections. Like this is the Pauline corpus, this is the general letters, this is the four gospels. You know, and then you would have Acts either attached to the four gospels or to the seven letters, and then you had John's Apocalypse just standing there by itself. Even though everybody accepted that early on, they're like, "This one is crazy." That's like far, this one. This far was not out. Like any of the other ones. Like, that was far out. Yeah, that was far out. And so. Um, <laughs> And, and that's what's interesting about Eusebius. So Eusebius, he, he, that's the early church father that I discussed early on who wrote about the history of the church. He divided the um, writings that were circulating in his day into three categories. One was universally accepted. The other category was uh, majority accepted but disputed. And then there was a third category uh, that was spurious or that was outright rejected as heretical. In the first category, universally accepted, he includes John's Apocalypse. In that third category, heretical, he also includes John's Apocalypse. All right, Now, every other church father is accepting John's Apocalypse. 
people are confused about what Eusebius was doing. And to me, it seems that Eusebius was not happy that this was universally accepted. And so he by himself was like, this book is spurious. I don't care what other people say. I think this is his name fits. too far out there. UCBS. Yeah. E-U-S-C. Wait, no, never mind. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I was doing a play on words. Uh, I realized yeah. that. <laughs> That's why I bailed that. Here I am. Here I am trying to be, you know, somewhat academic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to remember his name from now on. UCBS yeah. is saying, I'm not sure everybody should have accepted that. Now, all right, so so we're running out of time. I want to make sure, since you said something and I picked up on this, you wanted to really discuss the canonicity of the general books, the general. Yes, all right. the general letters. Yeah, yeah, because there was a lot of hesitation for one reason or another among a small portion of the population. It wasn't a large portion because the earliest mentionings of James and Jude um, that we get, I believe it's in the early second century, and we see these scriptures being directly quoted and referenced to a scripture. And so, from the earliest attestation of these texts, we are like independent attestation, meaning that it's people who are observing them that are not the writers of the text. They're accepting them as scripture very early on. Now, the question becomes that whenever people were referring to James and Jude, were they also referring to the collection of letters within them? And there's oh, much debate it. and disagreement about that. But some it. people like this this guy, uh, Darian or Dorian, I forget what his first name is. It's either Darian or Dorian. His last name is Lockett. He's done a pretty good study on it, and he argues that these Catholic epistles, almost from the very beginning, were circulated together as a corpus. And so ooh, these... Ooh, ooh. No, no, you lost Okay. All right. Where did I lose you? Starting with Dorian. Oh, first of all, Dorian first of all, I got to yeah. tell you, my mind wandered. I started thinking of Spartans. I know that's not where you were going. So I had to pull okay. myself back. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Not talking about the Spartans. I'm talking about current historian. <laughs> all right. Dorian, Dorian Lockett or Darian Lockett. Um, he is a historian that has studied the Catholic epistles specifically. And what he has argued is that these letters were... Uh, written and almost immediately began circulating as a unified, let's say, collection of letters. They were, it, it almost seems that whoever was writing these were writing these as a unit, and it is for them to be one canon within a canon. It doesn't mean that there's a canon within a canon, but you know what I'm saying. Well, it's right, some well, collection well, of letters. Can I try? So, yeah. so Winston Churchill wrote a history of the English and it's in five volumes, maybe six, I think it's five. Those would all be considered his works on the the um, English-speaking people. If you took one out, it wouldn't be complete. But if yes. you put one in, it wouldn't be his work. Correct. Yes. Okay. And that's what Lockett has argued, is that this, this is a, it's almost like a book that is a single book but has multiple authors writing essays in that yeah, book that's covering yeah. one subject. Well, that book wouldn't be the complete book if you took out one of those essays. I, I follow you. Same I follow you. It would here. be the same thing with, with, with Churchill, but he said, look, I'm going to assign Jim. You write this part. I'm going to write this part. And mm-hmm. and I, I think I get it. But all yeah, right, well, let me, all right, so, so when it came in these collections, you, you, you went through it so fast. Sometimes were there things in some of the collections that didn't belong? Was that the problem? So 
There's debate on that. So Clement of Alexandria was a well-educated man. I know who you're talking and about. He referenced, he referenced a lot of things that were not scripture, but at the same time, there's clear indication that he knew what was scripture because he cited those texts extremely more than the non-scripture texts. Well, yeah. so, go ahead. Go ahead. Now go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I mean, I'm trying to, to gain on this because, you know, I, you know, I like the Middle Ages learning how that, how that passed. Well, one of the things they did in the Middle Ages to determine whether or not an early church father considered something canon was if there was an, it was, there was, what would what we would now call apologetics if there was an argument to be made the way they would know if they the early church fathers believed it was canon they would use that as part of their apologetics and they would mm-hmm. leave out things they did not mm-hmm. does that make sense well, yeah it does but clement he I, I don't know if that's necessarily the correct way of going about it because clement would use things and even paul paul used things to support his arguments um, that were not canonical and were never considered scripture. He just knew the culture of the day. Yeah. He's able to take these sayings from this culture and use them to support his arguments against the Athenians or whoever. And so he was taking extra biblical concepts and applying them to his argument. I think that's what Clement of Alexandria was doing whenever he was writing, because he wasn't citing these authors over and over and over you. again. He you. just knew the audience of his day that you'll get this concept, so I'm going to use this in my argument. But this is what I consider scripture. And it's like someone did a statistical analysis of how much he cited scripture versus these other uh, extra-biblical texts. It's like he cited scripture, like let's just say the scripture of Matthew, something like 258 times versus an extra-biblical author that he cited 16 times. You know, so it wasn't even close, like as far as the comparison goes. Um, and and so there's pretty good indication that even though these authors were using extra biblical writings, they were not using them as scripture. Well, I, am, am I mistaken on this? Did Paul quote or use, not quote, but used uh, some Neoplatonists to explain the Trinity? Oh, uh, not off the top of my head, but. You might be able to point me in the right well, direction. Well, the reason I'm questioning it is because I don't, I no longer feel comfortable ever citing the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire because I think that the volume two, which is which covers the early Christian church, has so many errors in it that I'm not sure how much he's right and wrong on that. I think that that's that's where he that, that the decline and fall really really is being criticized in volume two. So I'm and I'm in volume two here. So I'm I'm, I'm not sure about it. that's why I was asking. Now I have no problem. I have no problem saying that they that they thought there had to be a logos because if there was creation, it had to be done other than from the Godhead. It had it, there had to be a logos. So I don't have a problem yeah. with that philosophy following it. But I didn't know if he quoted it in the Bible. Or not quoted, well, referred to it is a better word. This is where I think Mike Lycona's book and other people think Mike Lycona's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, um, excelled was in his exegesis of Paul's use of the resurrection um, and also an extra biblical uses of the resurrection. Anytime that word was used in metaphysical resurrection, it wasn't a it wasn't a weird rise and dies like spiritual. You separate mm. the spirit from the body. There's another word that was used for that separation of the spirit from the body, whereas the resurrection, the, the reanimation of the body with the spirit, the reunion of the body with the spirit. 
And so Mike Lycona did a really, really good job in his book covering that. And that's what Paul was doing in his text. He wasn't, he didn't have a neoplatonist concept that there was, that the spirit and the body were incompatible and that the magic of death is the liberation of the spirit from the body. I don't know that they were saying that though, Jim. I Mm -hmm. interpreted the neo, of course there's two neoplatonists. You have to be careful with that. Uh, But, but my understanding was that you needed a logos to create, not that they had to be separate. But that was the well. What, what is, so what's logos to you? To the Neoplatonists, that logos would be that would be God manifest. Actually, so actually, actually, what you're saying? Well, that Neoplatonists wouldn't say that, but that's what I would say. Yes, I, I would say okay. that Jesus Christ. I thought right. I thought logos meant the written word of God. Well, logos is the word that's used in John one. Okay. So yeah, it it, it means you know word capital W and then also word lowercase w. Okay. So so that that's that's kind of what I when I read the when I read Decline and Fall, which I read several times, that's what I got out of it. Now I have not studied Neoplatonism outside of 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 the Decline and Fall. So again, I, I realized that I've got to do some rehab on my brain because that's where I learned all this stuff and, and he has been that part of his writing has been debunked. So I need I need to I need to study. You yeah. need to give me some books so I can undo what he taught me. Yeah. Well, this thick book, uh, The Resurrection of Jesus, is a really good one. But I'll show you the section specifically pertaining to Paul's use of uh, the word uh, resurrection, which is anastasis, and he uses that to argue for Paul's meaning. Like, what did Paul specifically mean whenever he was bringing this concept? Two people. And, you used another R word. What was it? Was the resurrection being rearranged or something? What did you say? I forget. That was a good word. Um, I wish I wish I written it down. <laughs> no, no, it, it was. It was to me. It was more descriptive than resurrection. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't know. He definitely cited extra biblical texts. They could have been ne- Neoplatonic. I really don't know, but um, yeah, it doesn't mean that. The early Christians took these as scriptural. They just took them as I get helpful. It. I do. I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've yeah. we've we've done several things that I have today. We, we, I, don't, I, I think that I tried to explain something with the SEC. That doesn't mean I think it's scriptural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so all this is days. People in Alabama would disagree. What's that, Doc? Jim? Oh no, we're good. I do have to go, but I think that. My concluding remarks are that, and even though we didn't get into much detail today, is that um, I always knew, well, I knew from early research that the four canonical Gospels and the Book of Acts, the Pauline Corpus and Revelation were included in Scripture, like in canon. I knew that, and that they were justifiably so. But the Catholic epistles were the ones that were sort of hovering in my mind as far as whether these things were really accepted by the church or these these were something that was forced in there. But we need to remember that the early church fathers were really, really sensitive to the concept of authority as far as who it was that was writing these texts. And there were several Peter texts attributed to Peter that were orthodox, but were found out not to have been written by Peter, and the people who wrote them were kicked out of the church, not kicked out of the church, they were chastised, and they were removed from leadership, not because of 
they're um, writing something that was not orthodox. It was because they falsely attributed this, this letter to someone's name. And so there's good evidence that the early church fathers were very, very sensitive to this subject of authority. And these texts, for various reasons, were first accepted by a majority of the population very early on, and they passed all the tests of canonicity by people who know significantly better than we do. And so I don't think there's really any good reason or compelling reason to say that we're the better judges of these early church fathers in uh, allowing them into Scripture or into canon. I would say amen to that. Yeah. I would. Yeah. That was, so, that's a good summary. I would say that's a wrap. I don't know if it's a wrap <laughs> or not, because but you got to go, Jim. Thank you. I want to let you yeah, I want to the funniest thing you said today was that you didn't go into enough detail today. <laughs> you went into any more detail you would have lost us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right okay thank well, you jim yeah so we'll see you so anyway right. um pastor you got a few minutes is there anything you want to add to this no except that uh if you ever retire from being a lawyer you ought to go over there to dallas fort worth and become a seminary professor in Dallas Fort Worth. Me? Yeah. That's the first person who's ever said that. <laughs> but I appreciate it. Everybody that. be signing up for your class. <laughs> well, the SEC and God, that's what it would be. So, so Glenn, what do you have to say? we got a few minutes. Uh, okay. This is an uh, interesting conversation in that we went into both sides of this uh, canonical coin, I guess you call it. There's those of us who think about, how do I know this is the word of Paul or God or Jesus? We think about that in the Bible while we're reading it. Uh, that's some people. Some people know this is my faith. This is I know is true. And that's two different experiences for two groups of people I think we just kind of explored today. Uh, Jim is very into the academic intellectual part of this. And it's interesting that he's come to the conclusion, yeah, there's evidence. This is real. This is true. Uh, I will say that canon to me, I think of it this way. The people of the time, maybe they, they go, oh, yeah, we've got to include this book, of course. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, you know, think about now what if we, if we looked at some of these headlines currently and People look at them a hundred years from now and say, gosh, they thought this? Yeah. And we go, no, we didn't say that. That's bull. That's just what was on the news. Yeah. So I reporting. think sometimes that's what we get into when we talk about, you know, do we know? Glad we're exploring, do we know? But I think there was a lot of wisdom at the time, even if it was just a story that was written down. It still does not make it true. And would God and Jesus let us believe something that wasn't true? I got it. I got you. I got you. You know, to do this thing that you, I know you were making a joke about me going to seminary, teach at seminary. I will say that I will never have the ability to do what Jim does, stay with something that hard, that long, to be able to quote all the people who've talked on it that are considered experts. That was amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I think that what I bring to the table is because it's just a different. I, I'm historical on everything. When did this happen? I, I didn't notice that. You didn't. 
And so, so I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to remember someone like Abelard off the top of my head, just because I've studied him several times, but I don't, if you got me to argue details on what Abelard believed, I can't, I can just tell you that he was more Aristotelian than he was Pluto, Plato. Well, that makes it plain. Yeah. Well, for me, it does, <laughs> but it's a, it's a history thing. You know what I'm saying? And, and well, I, I mean, it's, I, I understand where you're going, James. I just thought it was a funny comment. Yeah, it was a funny comment, but but I could definitely podcast for three weeks on that debate between Aristotle as the student of Plato and the effects that it has on us to this day. Communism comes from Plato. You know, it, it's there. And so so I, I see all of that. Well, Abelard pushed back on that and was persecuted for it, but he they told him keep it in academics because they did want to talk about it. So one of my point is I bring a completely different thing to the table than Jim does. I don't I could never do what he does. I'm amazed that he has that ability to stay with something to where I would go like, okay, this is good enough. <laughs> now I do do it in the law. You'll see me you'll see me do that in the law. I'll stay with it till the very end. But anyway, I will say that this is a, a, an interesting group of people together and I appreciate our listeners. I just know this that if we had had this, if we had had PJ's coffee early in the 100s and the 200s, none of this would even be a debate. What do you think, Lynn? I think that uh, we know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we have evidence, and uh, they would have had so much clarity. And the only way you could get better than that from the first century would be to have uh, PJ's today. At the Haunt PJ's in Haunt, Louisiana, where they have delicious coffee, uh, boosted teas, wonderful all-natural Red Bull, and of course breakfast sandwiches and pastries galore. Galore. <laughs> Couldn't put it any better. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Doc. Thank you, Glenn. Jim. Uh, I hope he knows that I'm thankful for him. And we will be back next week. We'll have a, a topic. Probably just. I'm going to insist that. That you pick the topic this time. I'm ready for something. Just some. let Doc pick it. Yeah, you know what? Win. You know what? How about this, Doc? Is it time for us finally to have these near-death experiences? Can you be ready next week? Not to lead it, but to talk about yeah. it. Yeah, we can do that. You want to do that? I'd like to do that because it's come. It keeps coming up recently. It's kind of becoming a topic out there. Uh, I don't know how it happens. Probably, There's a movie out right now. Oh, is that what it was? I thought it was TikTok. Angel Studios, I mean, it might yeah. be. That, I'm sure that I wouldn't be surprised if social media is played into it. But. Okay, I got you. All right, well, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow with some some non-secular stuff. What the, all right, thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.